You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning, everyone. Well, today we are talking about 1 Corinthians 14. So if you guys want to get out your Bibles and get ready, I'm going to be talking about the portion here that talks about tongues and prophecy. I'm not sure how many of you read Nathan's email that he sent out or if you read ahead in this. Wait. I'm I apologize. This is my fault. Um, I was just reading ahead, and verse 34 actually says, Women, you should remain silent in the church. <laughs> I, I, this is my bad. If you could just sit down. If you could just go sit down. That's my fault. That's... <laughs> Um, not only are you to remain silent in the church, you're actually not allowed to speak. You should always be in submission, as the law tells us. If you, hey, if you want to know anything, you can ask me, but at home, okay? At home. It's, uh, it's disgraceful. Uh, it's disgraceful. It's right there, 1 Corinthians 36. So, again, I apologize for exposing that to you. I hope none of you are too offended, and we will have counseling in the prayer room or even having to see that. That was rough. That was rough. Oh, okay. Let's get on to some good old Bible teaching. Thank you. Why is her head not covered? Yes. There were so many sins going on just now. We can't cover them all. Oh, man. You know, we, we poke fun of it here. But we are at a verse that has caused so much division and so much problem and so much perpetuation of a male-dominant hierarchical structure between males and females that the church to this day has no idea how the relationship is supposed to work. Right? I am positive that when Christy stepped up here, there were some of you who were like, is, uh, is this just another announcement? Is this a third offering message or a second? Because there is in our hearts this idea that says there is a structure that God created and men are here and women are here, but it's okay because God created it this way. And I'll be honest, I have fallen to that same structure. (laughs) You try to be vulnerable to some people and they just stick the knife in deeper. You try to share your heart. No, the truth is that we will often, when it comes to this subject especially, fall on what is tradition or what did we grow up with or what does the person who's my mentor say about it? And that's honestly where I was. What does my mentor say about it? And so where I stood on the, on the platform of women speaking in the church or, or teaching from the stage on a Sunday morning more specifically, we have women do offering message, we have women give prophecy, we have women on the worship team, but... Because of how I grew up, there was still this separate distinction about teaching, right? Because godly men, good men, loving men have held to this idea, and they view scriptures like the one that I just read, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 36, as one of the basis as to why we do this. And so this morning, I encourage you to pray with me here and say, God, Help eliminate any bias I have towards this issue that is not from you. 
Can you do that? Whether you're Nazarene or you're Baptist or you're Presbyterian or you're Pentecostal or whatever background you come from, say, God, I'm none of those things. I'm your child. And I want to know, as your child, what do you say about me and how I relate to the opposite sex? Let's pray. Father, God, we need your wisdom. We need to tear down barriers and walls that have been put up. We need to take ideology and thoughts captive in the name of Jesus. And we need to say, give us wisdom, God. Give us wisdom. And so we pray for that here this morning. Give the men and women in this room wisdom to hear truth and to reject the lies that the enemy would have us believe. In Jesus' precious name, God's people said, amen. 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 Okay. So... The verse right before 34 is uh, 33, funny how that happens, but it is this, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So I want you to pay attention to that. God is not a God of disorder, but he is a God of peace, as he is in every congregation that worships him. And then he makes one of the most bold, abrupt statements in all of his writings, about women in the church and their roles and responsibilities. But before I attack, before I tackle that, I want to go back to the beginning. I want to go back to the beginning. Whenever you're trying to figure out something, you go back to its origin, do you not? Whenever you want to find out the meaning of something, you can't try to find it out in the middle of where it's at. You have to go back to the beginning. What was the intent? What was the creator's intent? What was the purpose of this thing? And so we're going to do that. We're going to go back to creation, which takes us all the way back to Genesis. If you want to follow along, you can turn your Bible over to Genesis 1. And we're going to be going through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I've got to do this rather quickly. Unfortunately, to be honest with you, this is an entire series. And most likely, depending on how today goes, it will be a series that I do in the new year here after Advent and fast prey season. Because I've got to just today give you a synopsis. In order to explain... What in the world is going on with the words of chapter uh, 14, verses 34 through 36? I need to explain some of this earlier stuff, but I'm not going to be able to do it justice. But hopefully, I'll do it enough to pique your interest and to be able to plant a seed that says, have I believed what's true or have I believed what's tradition? Okay? Genesis 126. This is God speaking. As Moses is inspired and writes out the creation story, he says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. So God determines to make man singular, but refers to them as plural. And the same phenomenon occurs in verse 27. You see, they reflect the fact that designation of the term man is a generic term for mankind. It encompasses both male and female. If you look at Genesis 5-2... The word man will designate male and female. It says he created them male and female and he blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. I bring this up because one of the arguments is is that man is made in God's image. Right? That man is made in God's image. That man was made first. And therefore, because of the mention of first, because of the rule of first mention, man has the authority because man was made first. And then woman, as we know, was made out of man, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's continue to follow this thing. So we have, in other words, this male-female differentiation which reflects a reality, not of an authority figure and a submissive figure, but as a picture of the oneness of God, of the Christ 
the Holy Spirit, and the Father, and how the three of them create and make up the oneness of God, that the male-female relationship under God's idea and mindset is human, mankind, and together they make the image, the visible representation of the God. God neither is female nor is he male, right? He is neither gender. But we know that in male and female, we get a picture of what the image of God is. We are his creation. We are something he thought up in his spectacular brain. Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Here's another verse we use, a helper. She's a helper to me. You know, when I was a stonemason, I had a helper. You know what I made him do? Lift the heavy stones and bring them to me. I had them mix the cement and bring them to me. Why? So I, the stone layer, could build my beautiful wall and the helper did the grunt work. Do you know that this is the exact image the church has used for women as helper? That, that we look at women and we look at this word as helper and we say, well, there. Adam had a busy day. He was naming animals, picking fruit, climbing trees. He needed someone to help him pick up his, his no clothes and wash no dishes. He needed a helper. Oh, what a backwards understanding. What a backwards understanding. Let's, let's just think about this for a second. Genesis 2.18, it is not good. Everything God built was good except man. I'm sorry, that hurt me to say that too. Everything he built, right? The birds, they were good. The monkeys, they were good. The trees, they were good. Fish, good. Man, not good. There is something incomplete about him. Adam felt it. Adam was in paradise, literally paradise. He had pools to swim in and animals around him and all the food to eat. And he was probably gorgeous, perfect body like yours truly. And just <laughs> through the desert, through the paradise of what it must have been like. And it says that he was incomplete, that he was lonely, that there was something missing. He's naming these animals. And I had someone ask me after first service, when he's naming the animals before Eve, were there male and female animals? I don't know, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? I'm just kidding. Yes, there were male and female animals, which is why as they're coming to him, Adam is seeing all of the creation that God is unfolding before him. And he is, says that he saw that there was none for him. He sees the couples, he sees male and female animals, he sees the relationship and realizes there's nothing on my level, there's nothing of my equal. And God said it is not good for him to be alone, so we will make a helper suitable for him. Essentially, ladies, and you can use this on your husbands, what it's saying is that without woman, man was helpless and unable to fulfill his mission. Yeah. I know, I argued against saying that, but I did. So, like I said in the past, uninformed Bible teachers sees this word as meaning subjected to the authority of man, but I want you to see something. Generally, in the Old Testament, the word helper is not used as a subordinate. In fact, it is used to attribute attributes of God himself. God, the Holy Spirit, is called our helper. Consequently, the word may not be used. You cannot use that word to begin to draw uh, inferences of subordinate versus authority. If it does anything, it shows the equality. It shows that she rescued Adam from a life of loneliness and came in as part of the community that God intended for his image bearers to have. 
How amazing that we use the very word God intended that Moses wrote down to show the equality and the beauty of creation to prove that males have power and dominion over females. Talk about twisting the truth. Genesis 2, 2 21 through 22. So the Lord caused his deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and out of the rib the Lord made into took the rib and made a woman and brought her to the man. Now, this is a very bizarre element of the story because we know up until this point, God has created everything from dust. He created everything from the dust. And now we get to woman, and he creates woman out of man. Incredibly weird. Why? Why would God do everything else out of the ground? Why would this happen? Well, we're then told, I believe in three uh, or the end of two, I need to double check. You can double check me. But it says that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When Adam sees Eve, what does he say? Whoa, man, right? That's, I'm just kidding. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Finally, we saw the zebras and the giraffes and the elephant, and they were great, but yes, Lord, this, this right here. Finally, this is me. This is me. This is, I, I have an equal now. Not I have a subordinate. Not I have someone to boss around. I have my equal. Adam immediately recognizes. God brings her to him, and he immediately recognizes in her the role that she plays. And they are one flesh. And you often look and you say, isn't one flesh more described like a parent-child relationship because they literally are part of you and share your same DNA? Language, context, context, context. The one flesh is not about sharing the same DNA. The one flesh is about your interdependency. The relationship you have with a child is the child is interdependent on the parent. The relationship of a one flesh relation is that the two are interdependent on each other. I'm gonna talk more about that when we get into the whole concept in Ephesians, which has been also completely brutalized. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So guys, we get one Lord, women get two. Us and, and him. I kid you not, this is how it's preached. This is how it's interpreted, right? Okay. Let's move on. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man. Pay attention to that. The Lord God commanded who? The man. the man, saying, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it. You will surely die. Who did God give that commandment to? Yeah. The man. Where was Eve? Still in his rib. So when the serpent comes, when the deceiver takes the form of the serpent... He comes not to Adam, the one who received the direct revelation of God about what that tree is, but he comes to the one who would have received it secondhand. No doubt Adam would have told Eve we're not to eat of that. In fact, we know he did because Eve says we're not to eat of that tree. Well, why aren't you to eat of it? Because on the day we eat of it, we shall die. Oh, no, Eve, that's not true. Didn't Adam tell you? The fact you can't eat of this tree is because on the day that you eat of it, you will be like God knowing good and evil. 
Which is why the Bible tells us in Romans and Corinthians that the woman was deceived. Which is why sin entered the world through man and not through Eve's decision. Not because she's lesser than Adam, but because Adam was the one who was given the direct command from God. Adam was the one who that as he sat there, because it says she turns to her husband, so he was listening to this whole exchange. He sits there, he looks at it, he watches her take a bite, and he says in his mind, huh. She didn't die. She didn't die. God said we would die, and I was sort of testing it out on her. I figured he'd make another one. I have more ribs. That's what he was doing. He let her eat it. He never spoke up. He knew the truth. He walked with God. He got the command directly. But his heart by that time had already turned. The sin had already begun in his heart. Oh, I'd like to be like God. Let's see what happens to Eve. Oh, she's okay. She said the fruit was good. Okay. God even says, Eve was deceived. Adam, you sinned against me. God recognizes it. And then what happens to God's man, to God's firstborn, is he comes to him and he says, Adam, where are you? And he's hiding. Why are you hiding? Because we're naked. Who told you we're naked? Naked is the ultimate form of the intimacy. Who told you this? What broke this intimacy? What broke this relationship? Well, it's this woman you gave me, God. She handed me fruit. I ate of it. Turns out things went real bad. Immediately we saw we were naked, and I was shameful of my nakedness. What does Eve say? Eve actually mans up. Eve says, I was deceived by the serpent. Eve mans up. Yes, she blames the serpent, but she doesn't say it was a serpent's fault. She says, I was deceived. And so the curse does not fall on Eve. It falls on Adam. Eve, however, is going to experience the suffering of the curse. You catch that? I want to show you something. If God, if this is a creation, right, we're going back to first mention, if God created things and the authority structure, because there is authority, and it looked like this, it was God and then Adam and Eve on the same line and then nature. Do you agree with me? God, Adam and Eve, and then nature in order they may take dominion over it and subdue it. After the fall, the authority structure looks like this. God, nature, Adam, Eve. You see that? It actually says so right here. Um, I lost my place. Genesis 3.16. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Well, there it is. Finally, the pastor got to it. That's why, that's why men are above women. It says it right there. Okay, now wait, wait, wait a minute. You want to take the result of sin, you want to take the fall, and you want to apply that to our lives nowadays, and you want to say that's okay. You want to say that that's how it's supposed to be. Well, sure, we see the entire Jewish community all through the Old Covenant. This is how the men treated the women. 
I mean, Solomon was the culmination of it with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Why? Because sin grows. And when sin grows, it will fulfill itself and manifest itself until it has reached a maturity. Which is why there is a double standard all throughout the Old Testament on this. When it comes to polygamy, adultery, trials of ordeal, a man could say that my wife cheated on, him, on me without any evidence and she could either be put to death or divorced without cause. And we look and we say, well, because that's there and these are God's people, and in fact, it's even in the law, right? The law that supposedly Paul is referring to here in 1 Corinthians. Well, then it must be okay. It's okay. This is how it's supposed to be now. Men are to rule over their wives and their longing will be for their husbands. But what we miss, what we completely miss is that this is a product of the fall. What is the thing that Adam and Eve used to be over? Nature. What is the thing that God looks and says to Adam, because you have done this, you will toil in the dirt. So the very thing that used to bring him joy and pleasure is now the cause of his suffering. And the very thing that used to bring the woman joy and pleasure and whom she came from is now the cause of her suffering. You can thank me on that one. Your husband is the cause of your suffering. <laughs> and unfortunately... Your desire will be for him. Your desire is for him. You see, God in the community created the woman, the part of his character and his nature that desires the man, that desires the relationship, is drawn to it. And yet the man, because of sin, will be drawn to the toil and the work and the suffering of the ground. And it creates a conflict now in God's creation. And so pain even in childbearing is not imposed, but rather it is an effect of suffering because of the curse. So the thing from which Adam came is now his suffering, and the thing from which Eve came is now her suffering. It has nothing to do with hierarchy. It has to do with the point of the curse. In fact, we know that it's not the will of God that this is how it should be, because Jesus, they come to Jesus and say, well, what about divorce? And Jesus says, Moses allowed divorce because your hearts were wicked. It's not my will that any of you should be divorced. That when you join together in union, you're a picture and an example of myself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. It would not be the Father's desire that any of it should happen to you. So you can't look at it and see what's going on and say, well, of course this is God's will. It's in the, uh, it's in the law and it's what his people did for years and it's just the way it's supposed to be. So if this is the case, and this is how the Old Covenant and the people in the Old Covenant responded to one another, then we have to get to this question and say, what's a priest's job? A priest's job is to speak to the Lord on behalf of the people, right? What's a prophet's job? A prophet's job is to speak to the people on behalf of the Lord. Which one would you say is a higher office? The prophet. The prophet's hearing directly from the Lord. In the Old Testament, which one... Which male or female could be priests? Males alone. Who could be prophets? Males and females. Fascinating. Does Abraham listen to his wife, Sarah? Yeah. Are there women in the Old Testament who changed not only their households, but their kingdoms in the course of the world? Yeah. Ruth, Athelia, Esther, Rahab, Deborah, Abigail. We can keep going. So 
why is it that in 2018 in God's church, we still struggle with the concept of understanding that men and women were created equal, and even in our relationship with one another, there is an equality there and not a submission authority type relationship? I want to explain that. Because now we get to redemption. We had creation, we had the fall, and now we have redemption. If you look at the New Testament, we discover that there is a victorious proclamation all throughout the New Testament that basically Christ has come and brought a new creation and the old is gone and the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. The new age has dawned with the advent of Jesus. He has inaugurated the fullness of his redemption. The mystery behind how God was going to redeem his people has been fully revealed to all of us. And now we are given his spirit, something that was relegated for only special moments and people and times when God was preparing his people. But now any man or woman, whether Jew or Gentile, whether wealthy or poor, slave or free, male or female, can have the spirit of God. Well, what does that grant me? What does that grant me? Oh, I heard about the gifts a couple weeks ago, Pastor. And then I know I'm supposed to love and the spirit helps me love. You know what else it grants you? It grants you the ability to go back to relationship like it was in the garden. To see one another as equals. And to begin to live under what is called mutual submission to one another. In fact, that's all we see written about in the New Testament. Mutual submission. We talk about the headship of the man, right? But headship is not used in a way that denotes authority. If you look at the writing, Paul did not use the word headship in a way that is authority. He used it in the way that is river, the source of the river, right? The source of life, just as man was the source of life for woman. And then as Paul said a few chapters ago, woman now is the source of life for all man. It is talking about man as the source. Well, what was Christ? If Christ is then the head of the church, that means he's the source of life for the church. And then I have to look at the source and I have to say, how did the source act? Did he ever exercise his authority? He could have exercised his authority in the desert, couldn't he, when he was fasting. He could have exercised his authority when they came for him. He could have exercised his authority whenever the crowds were coming for him. Instead, he would run. What did he do? Instead, he showed what it means to be the head by being a servant to all, by showing kindness to all by redefining to his disciples and everyone who looked at it how a man should treat a woman. The woman at the well, the woman in prostitution who was brought to him, Mary Magdalene, Martha, Mary, his mother, Elizabeth. We see these incredible women of faith. And then post-Jesus, we see Priscilla and Aquila, right? Priscilla, we see that God is using women in mighty ways and reestablishing how he made them in creation. Wow, how did we miss that? How are we 2,000 years later and we missed it? I'll tell you why. Because it is easier to live with one another if we can just live in a hierarchical order situation. It is easier than mutual submission. Because mutual submission means I have to die to myself and I have to put you ahead of me all the time all the time. Man, that's tough to do. That is so tough to do. So there's four things here, and I gotta get to this, because I gotta get to this, why I kicked Christy off the stage, right? 
I got to show you where all of this means nothing because of what Paul said. Um, Good, I was joking, thank you. (laughs) Chapter 11 of Corinthians, verses 1 through 16, focuses on the divisive worship that was based on uh, Judaistic hierarchical traditions, right? If you remember that, we talked about that when we were on chapter 11, the divisiveness in worship. And then in 17 through 34 of chapter 11, he talks about the divisive practices while they're taking the Lord's Supper. Remember that? The wealthy were separating themselves from the poor. They were gorging themselves, and the poor were going hungry. He says, stop that. That's disgusting. Don't do that. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, two weeks ago, we talked about the divisive practices of spiritual gifts, how people were using them for their own benefit and not for the edification and building up of the church. And now the fourth thing that he is going to speak to the Corinthians on when it comes to division is 14, 31 through 40, divisive practices relative to the exclusion of female participation in congregational worship. Here we go. Do you feel like you've got an adequate background now with understanding the way God designed it to be? So what in the world is Paul doing? Ladies, be silent. Ladies, you aren't supposed to speak. Remember what the law says. So as you begin to read this, and it it hits you sort of abruptly, Paul's talking about order, and he's talking about how we serve a God of peace, and then all of a sudden, he hits us with this, uh, women should remain silent in the churches. And so there's these explanations out there, and this is the one I sort of bought into, that this was a cultural thing. Have you heard that? This is cultural. This is for that time. Women were sort of secondhand, and Paul's wanting to appease the culture, but it's not for today. We've grown past that part of Scripture. Well, the problem with that is, if I can pick that verse out as cultural, which other ones can't I? I can start to pick all sorts of verses out and say, well, that's not relevant for today. They didn't have computers. They didn't have flying cars. They didn't have any of the wonderful stuff that we have. So those verses aren't relevant either. Oh, here's the other explanation, that that section was written in by the Corinthians, right? Because that's the sin that they were doing and they wrote it in and made it look like Paul's writing. Well, you see, I have a problem with that too then because then what that means, if that, if that is an inerrant statement and that is not a statement that was supposed to be in there, then it made it past the canons and all of the creeds and everyone who's looked at it and it was never removed. So that, I have a problem with that too because now that means What else in the Bible that I don't like can I just say was written in by somebody other than Paul? No, you know what? There's actually a real explanation to what it is. And when I tell it to you, you're going to look and say, oh my goodness, how have I not seen that? And I'll tell you that because I did that. Five years as a senior pastor, 10 years as a pastor, 20 years in ministry. And I stood on the thing of, well, we just won't have women teach from the stage because I want to make sure and err on the side of caution. God's like, you're going to suppress 50% of your community because you're afraid of caution? Have you read my word? Look at this. Verse 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. In, this is important, all the congregation of the Lord's people, period. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they were to inquire something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Friends, what he is doing, what those verses are, those two verses, are a quote from the letter that was sent to him by the woman who was telling him about the problems that were going on in Corinth. Look at this. Look at the writing. When you study the writing and you look at the Greek, you realize this is not how Paul spoke. 
These two sentences are a complete abstraction away from how Paul spoke. How he referred to the law, he did not refer to the law that way. How he referred to God's people, that's not when he spoke about them. He didn't refer to them in that way. So what Paul is doing here as he's talking about order in the service, as he's talking about how our God's a God of peace, is he takes a direct quote. I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 5. We're told the woman's name who sends him the letter about the problems going on in the church. He takes a direct quote from that letter and he places it in here to show them, I know what you're doing. He doesn't reword it. This is a quote in Greek language. They did not use quotation marks. And you can actually see all throughout Corinthians where he quotes them verbatim. And it's funny because I thought to myself, well, why isn't this one as obvious as those other ones where he's quoting them? The fact is, it is obvious. It's a complete departure from everything Paul's been talking about for 13 chapters. Women, shut up. What? You've just told us to prophesy, and you've told us to want the gifts, and you've told us to to be in the service, and, and now you're telling us we're not allowed to speak? We missed it because we wanted to miss it. We didn't see it because we didn't want to see it. So Paul quotes this section, and what what he's doing is he was sent a new doctrine that the men in Corinth were implying in the church. And so this woman writes it down and says, Paul, this is what they're saying. Look, I'm going to seal, I'm going to put the final nail in the coffin on this. Look at how the next verse goes. Did God's word originate with you? Or are you the only people that his word has reached? He puts a section of their theology into his letter, and he says, what in the world is that? Did God's word reach you? Are you the only one that God has taught this garbage to? If any one of you thinks you're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, then God himself will ignore you. So, therefore, remember, what is the therefore, therefore? Therefore, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. What? How have we missed that? How have we gone all these years and used that as one of the reasons why women aren't to teach from the stage? Because we didn't want to see it. We didn't want to see it. We wanted to believe and just ignore the fact that Paul immediately follows it up with brothers and sisters. And there's so much more to get into on this, but I I, I need, I need to bring this to an end. And I want to say this because maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, but look at Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands. Look at 1 Peter. Who, Who here thought 1 Peter 2? Women shall not teach in the church. I got you there. Do you, though? Have you read it? Do you know what was going on in the church of Ephesus that Peter was leading? Do you know what, why Paul said that? Do you know that if you're going to keep women from teaching in the church based on that verse, you need to keep reading to chapter 3, where he says that if you're a man who's not married, if you're a man who's married with only one child, if you're a man who's married with children who aren't, uh, who aren't in good standing with the Lord, you also can't teach? He basically excludes all men from teaching in the church except for men who have multiple children and whose children are of good repute and whose children follow the Lord. So there was something going on in the church of Ephesus. Maybe we shouldn't use that as a blanket statement in 2018 as proof in the Bible why women can't teach. Maybe we ought to understand what Paul was talking to Timothy about. I'm going to bring Christy back up here because Christy actually has an incredible word from the Lord. 
Christy has an incredible word from the Lord on the whole first part of 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to close out the service with that. Phew! This could be awkward if you hadn't come to that conclusion, huh? <laughs> so, the whole first part of it. Let's go back to that. Tongues and prophecy, right? Uh, we're going to start here. I'm just going to read the first three verses here for you. Where it says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So what Paul is saying, again, what's this whole chapter about? The order of God, right? And the whole purpose of using the gift of any of the gifts is for edifying the church. Well, that word edify is just a, a big fancy word to basically mean to improve or to instruct somebody morally or intellectually. So the reason he's saying you want prophecy more than tongues without interpretation is because tongues without interpretation is not instructing or improving anybody, correct? And we can see that again in later verses. So again, I'm just going to pick uh, verse 26 here where he says, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up or edified. And then the last two verses of the chapter, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So again, order, order, order. God is a God of order. And the next question in your brains might be, because this is natural, this is what I thought for a long time, and I know I've had lots of people come up to me and ask me this, is, well, isn't the gift of prophecy just for a few people, right? Not everybody has that. Well, I think Paul's pretty clear here in the first verse where he says, everyone should desire the gift of prophecy. And then he bookends it at the very end of the chapter by saying what? Brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, not just a few of you. So the difference I want to talk to you about briefly here is the difference between the spirit of prophecy and the order of a prophet. Do you know that those are two separate things? The fundamental difference is to be a prophet is a calling and anointing, and it's your identity. To minister in prophecy is a gift and an ability. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, Nathan talked about that two weeks ago, all the gifts of the Spirit, including this gift of prophecy. What they're to be used for is for the edification of the church. It's to be used amongst believers within the borders of the church, not for unbelievers. This verse, uh, I mean, this gift of prophecy we can see in, in verse 3 is for the strengthening, encouraging, and comforting of believers in the church. And prophecy is not just for telling the future. I think that's what we think when we hear that word. It's, it's saying something about what's going to come. But the gift of prophecy is actually manifest in a lot of different ways. It can be a spirit of wisdom, the ability to have insight into people and situations that's not obvious to the average person. It can be the gift of seeing things from God's perspective, having a word of knowledge, knowing something about a, 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 an incident that you didn't know before because the Holy Spirit revealed it to you. It can be about a future event, or it can be simply a, having a spirit of discernment, being able to discern a situation. So whether you're a teacher, a preacher, 
serving in kids, washing toilets, greeting at the front, all of us can have the gift of prophecy in accordance to God's will. And that gift will help you and all of us in our specific ministries to edify, exhort, and comfort the bride of Christ. And as I said, the gift of, of prophecy is not to go outside the borders of the church, right? So when prophecy does, when somebody does start prophesying about the future of non-believers, it becomes a spirit of witchcraft. When somebody starts prophesying about politics and who's going to win and they're revealing the futures of these things and it's outside of this order that God has set up, it is that spirit of divination. That is not what God intended. So then the office of a prophet. We know about the prophets in the Bible, right? We know about the Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, Jonah, Joel, Jeremiah. What's the difference? Well, we can see in Jeremiah 1.10 when the Lord is calling Jeremiah as a prophet, what he says to him is, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So the difference here is you can see he's actually being called to the nations and the kingdoms, right? The office of a prophet does not, is not limited to the borders of the church. The office of a prophet is called to the leaders of nations and kingdoms. In fact, they carry the burden of nations in the entire world. And they carry the, the word of God, the will of God to these nations, whether it's his favor or disfavor, whether it's a callback to repentance or it's an order of his judgment. We also see that who is it that calls him? Is it Jeremiah who determines he's a prophet? No, it's God who calls him to be a prophet. And somebody, a prophet who does not reveal the will of God and only speaks about the future is a false prophet. So ultimately, to help you understand this even just a little bit better, in case it's a little murky still, this difference between the gift and the office, all of us in this room can cook to some degree, even if it's just boiling water. We can all cook, right? But not all of us are chefs. Just like every single one of you in here can sing, but you're not all a Celine Dion, right? We can all evangelize our neighbors and our friends, but we're not necessarily all in the office of an evangelist. We can all teach one another, but we don't necessarily have the job of being a teacher. Just like every single one of you can prophesy, but you're not necessarily in the office of a prophet, and as helpful as this gift of prophecy is to the church, we as believers are not to gullibly embrace everybody who says they come speaking on behalf of God. In 1 John 4, verse 1, he says, to test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So one barometer we can use is anybody prophesying should always be pointing to Jesus Christ as God's son fundamentally prophecy, all true prophecy should bear witness to Jesus Christ and should be Christ-centered. If it's not, that should give you a little clue. The other thing is it should always be able to be confirmed by Scripture. Prophecy will never contradict Scripture, and it will never add to Scripture. If it does, again, it is not of the Lord. 
Paul wrote in, Thess- in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what is good. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 18, he said, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. Do you see here what he's saying is the command is the scripture. It's in line with the prophecies, and it's for Timothy's encouragement to fight the battle well. Again, what is this whole chapter about, guys? God's order. So even in this, even with this gift of prophecy or any of the gifts, if we are seeking the gifts of the Spirit more than we are diving into God's Word, we are out of order. If you are going to be able to test the spirits and know that something is true, you have to know God's word. If this ever feels like it's boring, and so you need this gift of prophecy to make it not boring, then something is out of order. We should always be learning, always growing. I accepted the Lord in my heart with my mom in my bedroom when I was six years old. But when I was 14, I truly started pursuing after the Lord. I had a hunger and a thirst to grow and to learn, and I've been reading his word, and I've been seeking him ever since. So for 26 years, I have been truly seeking the Lord. And even then, I still learn new things. Just this last week, as Nathan and I are talking, going, that is brand new information. How did I not see that before? And I hope that if I live till I'm 100, I'm doing the same thing. This should never be boring. The gifts should edify and enhance what God is doing, but it should never be in place of this, to stay in God's order. So I'd like to call the band back out. And as we close this, I do want to invite you, if you would like to come forward for prayer, we are going to have our our pastors up here and prayer partners up here to pray with you. If you're walking through anything, we'd love to walk through it with you. And then I'm going to go ahead and pray as um, we go into this time of communion as well. Lord, I pray that you would come today. Holy Spirit, fill this room and speak to every single person in this place. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit in abundance on every person in this room. That you will fill us with the knowledge of your will through all wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives Lord, I ask all of this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to prepare our hearts for a time of communion now. Communion is a remembrance of what Christ did on the cross. It is a remembrance of who our Lord is, who our true one authority is in this life. It's a story that was told to me. Thank you very much. We often look at the authority between man and woman as man is the general and woman is the private. And there is a ranking and an order. And what God says is no. He actually specifically says, you will not run the church, you will not live this way, you will not have marriage the way the world does in hierarchy. Instead, it's more like you're both just generals. But you still mutually submit. How do you do that? Well, yesterday, my wife and I were doing a project in the backyard, and we had to pick up these 12-foot-long beams and move them. Each of us had to submit to the other one. If I decided to move at my speed and put the bar up over my head and take longer, bigger steps than her, then it's going to hurt her, and the project won't get done. 
If she's there quicker than me and decides to start before I get over there, she's got to try to pull this large, heavy beam without me, and it doesn't get done. If both of us don't submit to the other one, then the beam just sits there, and the job doesn't get done. But if we have mutual respect and submission one to the other, then we lift together, we take steps together, and we move together, both of us submitting our way of doing it to the way that gets the job done. That's the relationship. And both of us, male and female, serve one authority, and that's Jesus Christ. So when we partake of communion together, when we partake of the body and the blood of Christ, we're coming together and we're declaring that, Lord, you are my authority. Help me to love as you loved. Help me to serve as you serve. And help me to know you more each day. God, help me in this. So examine your hearts before you partake. But let's pray and bless it, and then you can get up. And if you have a relationship with Christ, we invite you to partake from one of the three stations in the front, or we have three in the back, and then we'll close in worship. Father, thank you for your body and your blood, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of the Son. Thank you, Lord. For, thank you for woman. Thank you for not leaving us men alone here but for providing us the counterpart that we needed to be whole. Father, bless the name of Jesus as we partake and bless, bless the bread and the juice as the body and the blood.